For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. that opportunity. <laughs> uh, this one, where I wanted to think about the, what is the, how do thoughts work with our practice, awakening and, and delusion? And um, I spent some time with um, various authors. I've got some of them here. I've got uh, Dogen, when Beyond Thinking, the Guide to Zen Meditation. I have Suzuki Roshi, uh, Zen My Beginner's Mind. I have uh, the Wu Meng Kwan, the collection of 13th century collection of, of koans. And I have um, the Sutra, the Platform Sutra, the Fifth Patriarch Quinnum. And uh, all of those I recommend highly, especially <clears throat> as you're trying to figure out what what our relationship to thinking is. You know, Buddhism has it, or Zen at least, has a complicated relationship with thinking. There's um, a wonderful koan that I think, uh, there's a series of koans that are that are related in, in a way. They, they share the same theme. So, um, you know, and a number of them are, are taken from very early writings within the, uh, the Zen tradition. So I think that in, in um, the three main koan collections, there are three or four koans that uh, are based on the, um, the poem, the Shinshin Ming, Faith and Heart Mind, you know, that the, the Great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, or the great way is is simple for those who have no likes or dislikes. And similar themes are uh, around the, the equivalent of, of what our ordinary mind is, what our fundamental mind is, and what its relationship is to thinking. And one of my favorites is is um, case nineteen in Wu Meng Quan. And that involves uh, Zhao Zhou when he was still studying with his teacher, Nanchua. He was not yet the great Zhao Zhou, the, the Dharma master in Zhao Zhou Monastery. And he asked Nanchua, well, uh, what is the way? And Nanchua said, well, ordinary mind is the way. And um, Zhao Zhou says, well, well, how should I seek after it? And and Natron said, well, if you seek after it, it just gets further and further away from you. And then Chandra said, well, if I'm not seeking after it, how will I know when I've got it? And, and Natron said, you know, it's not about knowing and not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is darkness or dullness. And that's always been interesting. The whole idea that any any concept is, is delusion in the sense that it, it is a it's an abstraction from what is real, and it assumes that uh, it doesn't obviously capture all of the uh, characteristics of 
any specific uh, entity in the world, and it also assumes that um, uh, concepts cause us to have a sense that the objects of the concept are freestanding, standalone, separate, independent entities. They're really things. So they're, they, some, some amount of delusion there, but I, I like Nan Chuan's follow-up that, well, but not thinking is, is just darkness or, or dullness. I mean, we have to have language. And, and it's really not a problem a great deal of the time. I mean, it, it's not really a problem to say, well, there's a mokugyo and there's a microphone and please pass the sugar, that sort of thing. It become concepts and language become a problem when we grasp them. And um, when they become associated with desire or some basis for an interest or an antipathy, which causes us to focus on them intently, um, sort of placing everything else besides the thing. We objectify, we turn and reify the thing into the, the standalone, independent, um, object. And when we do that, we object our, objectify ourselves as well, and uh, we start having this uh, evaluation of the object of our awareness, the object of thought or feeling or emotion. Um, we start evaluating it in terms of whether it's beneficial to us or harmful to us or potentially harmful to us, and we bring in all of our karmic uh, conditioning as well. So Let's say that we um, we see someone crossing a, uh, a street across the light um, with sort of zero in. We can feel the disapproval coming because this is against the rules as we've been, been taught. But uh, at that moment, the, whoever is crossing that is is a vividly a separate entity that we're paying attention to. So. So that's the distinction. And I think the, the distinction is something that's probably more familiar to us in Suzuki Roshi's language when he talks about a mind that is attached to something. And by attached, he means the whole range of words, I think, that have been used to, um, to translate the Sanskrit term upadana, which means clinging or attachment, it means grasping, it means abiding in or dwelling in or resting upon or being carried away by or being wrapped up in, all of these kinds of things that suggest that, uh, to, or being stuck, it suggests two things. One is that there's a role of, of uh, our intentionally focusing on something, paying attention to something, and at the same time that our attention is we're grasped back, we're sort of sucked into the reception of this this object. Um, and so the alternative to that is, as Suzuki Roshi would say, is, is, um, is big mind, where we learn to let go of the grasping 
is, you know, we would say uh, opening the hand of thought. Uh, and opening up without the grasping, we just find ourselves right here in the world. And that mind that is simply open to the world right here without grasping has all sorts of names in the Buddhist tradition, in the Diamond Sutra, and in the Platform Sutra of Bainam. It's called Essence of Mind. It can be called Big Mind. It can be called Buddha Mind. It can be called Buddha Nature. It can be fundamental, uh, our fundamental reality, our original face before our parents were born. There are all sorts of names for it. The whole idea that originality, it's underlying our consciousness at all times. It is the fundamental thing. And, and even small mind arises within that awareness, that open awareness of being in the world and then constricts it because it captures our attention. Um, so that's, that seems fairly abstract, but it has, you know, understanding that has, you know, understanding why that is significant, I think, is is evident in some koans, and it's evident in our life as well. And I wanted to talk about a koan in which this arises, and that's um, Case 29 of Wu Menquan, called Not the Wind, Not the Flag. This is uh, once the sixth ancestor, Wei Nan, saw a temple flag fluttering in the wind, and two monks were arguing about it. One said, the wind is blowing. One said, the other one said, the flag is moving. And they argued back and forth and back and forth without ever really reaching the fundamental point. And at that point, the sixth ancestor, Wei Nan, walked up said it's not the flag moving it's not the wind moving your mind is moving and we're completely startled and astonished that's the end of the story it doesn't say that they were deeply enlightened after that which is the way these stories usually (laughs) but anyway I think you know this sounds like uh, until now for so many years I've read this koan it seems to be one that's appears in articles or books about koans all the time, and it's it's different from some of the bigger, more famous koans, you know, what is the sound of one hand, what is mu, um, you know, the really famous koans about Nanjuan killing the cat and uh, Baijan and the fox and that sort of thing. And it seems like... Um, to me, at least on reading it for all these years, I've thought of it. I, I don't get the profundity here. Why does this seems like just a sterile intellectual argument? I'm not even really sure what the intellectual argument it is. What it seems to be is the two monks are are arguing, having a philosophical argument, perhaps on the nature of um, dependent coalizing and, and causality in things, and maybe the idea that the flag is moving. It's not that the wind is moving. Is saying that every all things are made up of the four elements, you know, of uh, earth, air, water, and wind. So wind is is the element of motility, of motion. And so maybe that monk is arguing that the 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 capacity and tendency to move is inherent is an inherent quality of the flag and that the wind is just some sort of condition that um, triggers 
emotion, the capacity for emotion that's in the flag. I don't know. I think that the wind is moving. That's pretty self-explanatory. But it just seems sort of strange. Then Wenang, the sixth ancestor, comes in and says, well, it's not the flag moving. It's not the wind moving. It's your mind moving. You go, well, that's okay. So is he saying, is he coming at this from some really philosophical viewpoint? Is he saying, oh, yeah, well, we all know Yogacara philosophy. So Yogacara philosophy would say that our, our, sensor, our mind takes sensory data and uh, uses cognition to construct the entire world as we perceive it. Reality is just a construction of our mind. And actually in Yogacara and some some parts of Yogacara would say are idealistic and they would say literally that there is no reality outside of what we ordinarily speak of as our perceptions and our cognition. So your mind really is making uh, is creating the the uh, the flag and the wind and, and the motion, or alternatively, may you could read this as saying that uh, <coughs> Chaozhou is is sort of taking a position that mind is Buddha nature; it is the reality of everything, which would be using the term that's used in um, the the. Sutra or treatise on the awakening of faith in the Mahayana, which is incredibly influential in Zen as well. So you just go, well, what's so profound about that? It's just that Wenang has won a philosophical argument, kind of. So what? And what does that do for me? It's kind of sterile. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's, what he's saying is he's pointing more to our actual experience, and he's and he's addressing the. Um, the argument that's going on between the monks, the discord, the lack of harmony, the um, emotional situation that they're undergoing and saying, look, you've gotten so caught up in this argument, you've gotten and in this um, discursive reasoning and in your desire to win this, that you've reified the wind, you've reified the flag, and you've even reified and abstracted each other. You're now just... Uh, you're just two people, each of you trying to beat each other. You need to let this go. Um, I think that's what's going on. And come back to let let go, stop, uh, let go of this attachment, this grasping to the objects of thought, the flag, the wind, each other, the objects of perception, the objects of emotion, the object of your anger or frustration, whatever it is, and come back to big mind and come back to the big self of this right here. In, in doing that, you also let go of the suffering, which is made up of, of uh, the attraction and the, you know, uh, our suffering comes about in connection with not just an attraction or antipathy uh, and delusion. It requires grasping. And when we combine those, the fact that we have, we perceive something and we either want it or we feel antipathy toward it um, and that tension of I have, there's something here that I don't like. I don't have something that I want. Um, Someday I have what I want, but something's going to change that. All of that is what gives rise to, that is the dukkha that, that we 
experience. And I think that that's, um, that's the fairest reasoning because, uh, uh, in reading of, of this, um, because it, first of all, it makes the most sense to me and, and it, it, it's why the, um, why the koan really makes sense. It brings it, brings the koan back into our lives and our practice, the necessity of, of, Letting go, not grasping the thought, emotion, and judgments, and so on. They're going to come up. The karma is there. The karma will arise, and emotions, and thoughts, and judgments, and desires will apply in response to to stimulus of all sorts. But it does. We do not have to grasp, and those perceptions and those emotions and judgments and desires do not have to control our lives and give rise to suffering and conflict with other people. And that's consistent with um, with what everybody in the 13th century understood about the six ancestor Wei Nun, uh, who was extremely influential. The, the platform sutra, the sixth patriarch, was has been an extremely influential book throughout the history of Zen. It was, um, well, first, let me just talk a little bit about the Sixth Ancestor Wei Nang. Wei Nang was born in Guangdong province, and when he was a young boy, his father died, so he had to earn mother, uh, money to support himself and his mother, and he did that as a woodcutter, and he did that until he was 24. And one day he was carrying a load of of firewood back from the uh, back for, from the marketplace, uh, back to the marketplace, and he heard a monk uh, reciting words from the Diamond Sutra, which was uh, Bodhisattvas produce thoughts without attachment and are not attached to sight, sound, taste, touch, or dharmas of any sort whatsoever. And when he heard that, he had an opening experience. He was awakened, and he chased down the monk, and he said, what is that? He said, what's the diamond sutra? He says, uh, well, you know, where can I learn more about that? And he says, well, you know, I got my copy of the diamond sutra at, um, what, what was it called? The Broken Head Mountain with the, the East Mountain Monastery under uh, Zen Master Hongret. So Wenang said, well, I'm, I have to go there. And so he took care of his mother's support, and then he went up to northern China. He left Guangdong to go up to to East Mountain Monastery and meet Hongren. And he met Hongren who, uh, and introduced himself as, uh, you know, Hongren asked those usual questions of, uh, who are you, where are you from, what are you doing here? And he said, you know, he gave his name, he said, I'm from Guangdong, and I'm here to become a Buddha. And you can tell that um, that Hongren tested him a little bit, because he sort of poked at him a little bit and said, oh, yeah, you're just a barbarian from Guangdong. You can't ever become a Buddha. Um, and Weidong didn't become angry or upset. He just said, well, I'm Northerners and Southerners are different. Our bodies are different, but not, uh, we are not different in our Buddha nature. 
And Hungren thought that was pretty interesting, but he basically said, well, you're not ready yet. You're going to go work in the kitchen. And so Wenang did that. He worked in the kitchen for seven months. He had a couple of contacts with Hungren after that, and Hungren kind of said, you're a pretty sharp cookie, but we've got to keep this quiet because uh, jealousy could cause you to get hurt. So you know the rest of the story about how uh, Hungren sets up a poetry competition to have the monks in the monastery all write the poem that shows the essence of Dharma and ultimate reality. And um, the head monk in the monastery, Shinshu, is the only monk there who who submits a poem. Nobody else, everybody says, well, Shinshu's going to win this, so why would I bother? But when someone is uh, reciting the poem in the kitchen, Wenang hears it and he figures out, well, this person doesn't really quite get it. And anyway, he gets somebody to write his own poem up on a wall in a hallway. And uh, Hongren sees it and he says, this is the guy. And so he has Wenang come in at late at night uh, and says, you know, um, you've got this and you're going to be my successor. And um, then he explains the Diamond Sutra to him. And when he, he gets to essentially the, uh, another passage that's essentially identical to the one that, that Wenang had heard before, that the Bodhisattva generates thoughts that are detached and does not attach to sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, or dharmas of any sort. To, it's not attached to anything. And once again, Wenang had an opening and Hongren gave him his robe and bowl and said, you take this, you're my successor, you're the sixth patriarch, but you're going to have to go hide for three years uh, to ripen, and you're going to have to get away from here because the monks are going to be very upset about this. So Hongren helps Wainang find a boat and rows him across a, a lake to start escaping, and Wainang starts going. And in fact, it turns out that the monks in the monastery are upset, and they form a posse, and they go get him. They're going to beat up Wainang and get the robe and bowl back because it's just inconceivable that this unordained, illiterate, southern barbarian could have been designated as the sixth ancestor. So this goes on for two months, and most all the monks but one have just given up. But there's one who had been a general, in, a high-ranking general in the army, and the Platforms, there are translations of the, there's a translation of the platform sutra that says something like, yeah, this monk Ming was a tough cookie. <laughs> so, so, uh, Wei Nang is, is escaping and he turns around and he sees monk Ming coming to him. He says, oh my God. And so Ming is saying, well, you're, I'm, you're gonna give me the robe of the bowl, barbarian. And, Wayne says, yeah, okay, this isn't about a robe and a bowl, and he puts them down on a log and says, you can have them if you want. I mean, Ming tries to pick them up, and he can't do it. Magically, he is not qualified. He himself is not qualified to be the sixth ancestor, so he can't pick up the robe and the bowl. So he drops to the ground. He performs a prostration. He says, you know, um, please uh, teach me. Right now, and um, and Wainang does, and his essential teaching is um, 
you you need to allow your mind to work freely without any attachment or hindrance. And they sat down to do the zazen like that. And after they'd done that for a little while, Monk Ming said, said, well, what is your secret teaching on how to, to become awakened? And uh, Wei Nang says, well, um, right now, without thinking of good or bad, right or wrong, like, dislike, good and evil, where's your original face before your parents were born? By that he means, what's your fundamental identity, your fundamental reality? What is your fundamental mind? And Ming uh, has an awakening experience. He says, well, Tell me more. What what do I need to do? And Wenang says, turn the light that shines within. So we've heard this before, right? I mean, this is this is this is Dogen's language from Fukan Zazeki. Dogen is 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 citing the platform sutra in Fukan Zazeki, talking about when you seize, you're thinking of good and bad, measuring uh Let's see, uh, I got to, to make it literal. Now he says, uh, take the backward step and turn the light inward. Your body mind by itself will drop away and your original face will appear. If you want to attain just this, immediately practice just this. So it's kind of interesting because this, you know, Without thinking good or bad, right or wrong, like or dislike. This is also this is a quote from Faith and Heart Mind, the Ming. So Ming says, "Well, I want to be your student now." And Wei says, "Well, I don't have students. We'll both be students of Hongren's. Go back, go find some place to practice." And Ming leaves, and, and um, Wei goes on his way, and he finds a group of hunters. Who are roaming from place to place and they're working their way gradually down to Guangdong again. So Weidong stays with them, but because he is a devout Buddhist at that time, at night when the hunters are asleep, he goes out and finds the snares they've set up and he lets animals out of the snares and, and the, the hunters are a little bit freaked out because he keeps dropping vegetables into their stews and <laughs> because that's what he, that's all he's going to eat. But after he's, he's been there, living with them for 15 years. They're down in Guangdong and he hears that um, a great Dharma master is going to uh, give a series of lectures on the Mahaparinirvana Sutra. And so he's making way his way to the monastery and he sees the flag up on the monastery, which means that there's about to be a lecture going on and he sees the two monks arguing and that's where we get to where that's where we get to the koan time is it okay i gotta hurry up um that's a good thing we had that clock because i could go on for a while <laughs> uh so um you know this is this is the way in which we, uh, it, this is, while it's not as explicit as in some of the other koans and the other stories. For example, uh, in the Wu Men Quan, 
case 22 is, you know, without thinking good or bad, what is your original face? Uh, 29 is this one. It's not, it's not the flag. It's not the wind. Uh, what is your original face is pretty direct about what to do. That we constantly open the hand of thought. We, we do that not only on our cushion, but we do that in our lives. You know, if we read the Tenzo Kyokun, um, Dogen says a number of times that in your work, you know, take the backward step to shine the light within. Let go of your thoughts and come back to your work right here. Come back to this moment. This, open your big mind. Come back to your big self and to your work. So we do this both on our cushion and on our and in our daily life off the cushion. Um, I think that's what that's what helps to keep us um, continually stepping out of delusion, continually stepping out of disharmony with ourselves and with others, and making ourselves open to work for uh, the benefit and well-being of other. Beings. Um, and I think I'll leave it there to give people a chance to ask any questions or make any observations you might have. Thank you. Wait. When they say ordinary mind is the way, how is that ordinary mind different than the mind that? We just have every day, like our ordinary mind, which I don't know about you, but mine is full of delusion because I just go about my day, my ordinary mind that I have. How is how is that ordinary mind in the koan different than? Because that ordinary mind is that open mind, big mind is there all the time. And the mind of clinging and distraction arises and falls within uh, within big mind. Um, that's why it's the ordinary mind. It's the mind that's there all the time and underlying everything. In the same way that really um, the world of objects we see when we're uh, living with small mind, those objects arise and fall within the entire world, within Buddha nature, within uh, our big self. Dogen would call it big self sometimes. Wow. Extraordinarily helpful. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I always expect helpful answers for that. Well, I think, you know, you know, the idea that we are inherently Buddhas, that we are inherently awakened, and that big mind is there all the time, uh, is something that I find very encouraging and that I try to mention in, in Zazen instruction, for example. We can't uh, we can't cause big mind to appear. It's there. And the problem is that if we strive to realize big mind, then as Nantuan said, well, it's just going to get further away from you because you're caught up in this striving, this idea of big mind and your desire for big mind. That's the only thing that's keeping you from ex experiencing the world of big mind. Big mind isn't something we we figure out it's not something we perceive, it's something that we actualize and that we recognize in our experience of the world. But uh, 
But the fact that we are inherently awakened and that that, that a mind is always there, and that so when we sit zazen, we're always going to come back, um, is is very encouraging to me. I know that so many people when they're beginning zazen get very uh, frustrated because their mind isn't clear and it's not calm and there are lots of thoughts going on. This is really hard. And you just have to say, well, you know, I, look, every time you get distracted, you're going to come back. You're going to wake up by yourself. There will be gaps in your, in that thinking, in that grasping thought, and you will come back because it's always there. And our job has been having opened the hand of thought to merely uh, acknowledge it and to resolve not to intentionally dive back into small mind thinking. Just, I'm going to be here in big way. Nicholas. Uh, to just piggyback on what you just said, well, uh, it gives us the opportunity to get to know our minds, right? And so, yeah, of course you have all kinds of thoughts, but um, when you sit over and over again, you start to see patterns. You start to see how things connect. And so it's just, it's a deep way. Once you kind of know what, you know, your own story is, I think it's kind of easier to maybe start to let go of that. Yeah, um, I, I think that's true. I think we learn a lot about ourselves. I mean, I have really thought of it quite that maybe it's, Maybe we are only able to study small minds. Well, study the self. So, you know, it's like a, the Dogen quote. Study the self, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's part of the self. Yeah, I, that's had different translations. That, uh, right, this would be an interest to study the self. Maybe it's big S self. To study the self is to forget the self, little S self. Um, I kind of like that reading better myself. Yeah. Um, I also was uh, thinking about, I had a teacher early on that um, always used to say, there's nobody out there. So, um, and it was a way to kind of uh, invite you to look within, like you were talking about the light within and, and, mm -hmm. and whatnot, is it, that there's, it's all mind, you know, there's like, we think everything's happening out here, but be positive that, you know, there's nobody out there. So, um, chew on that as a come on. <laughs> well, I'm not personally prepared to become an idealist and say there's nothing out there at all, but the, our only contact with it is through the mind. Right. The only reality we can and, know is the mind. Yeah, and if one tiny little blood vessel breaks in your brain, you know, you might have a completely different perception of the world. You know, like, the, it's like we are just our brains, basically. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and the, the thing about concepts, I thought was, you know, you mentioned the microphone and sugar, and, you know, it's like, yeah, we know what it, but what is a microphone? You know, it's a, we, we really don't know what that is. It's a piece of plastic. It has electronic, electronic components in it. It has a wire attached to it. But so the word microphone doesn't really give justice to what it is. You know? Yeah, it's just 
some thing. Or what is sugar? Pass me the sugar. Yeah. What's sugar? Well, sugar is a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, scientifically. So we can't really ever know much of anything. And and so the you know it's moving all in your mind. It's like every war is about the flag is moving. No, the wind is moving. You know, it's like no, your mind is moving. <laughs> you know, you don't have to blow each other up over it. <laughs> yeah. Or my God's right. You know, no, my God's right. You know, yeah. I got I got caught up in thinking about a, a hypothetical. Well, what's a what's a more real life example of how this comes up? And it's thinking about. Three sisters who grew up in a New England house, and it's been in the, the house has been in the family for generations, and all the stuff is all this old stuff, and there's old china and things like that, and mom's died, and these three sisters, so it's like Amy, Barb, and Charlotte, you know, sitting around the table, and like every old person there is now, they've got a provision in their will that says, well, I'm going to put little labels on everything to, so that we'll all know which one gets it, and so. Uh, all their lives, these girls, these women grew up uh, eating off this uh, Chinese lily pattern china, and gradually it's gotten broken over the years, but there was always this sugar bowl that they all used, and when it, they pick up the sugar bowl to see who it goes to, nobody's, nobody's, there's nobody's name on it, so, so, you know, Amy, the oldest one, puts it in her box. And then Barb, the middle one, goes, well, yeah, I, I wanted that sugar bowl, and I was the one who took care of mom in the last two months of her life. I really deserve to have that sugar bowl. And Amy goes, well, I'm the oldest one, and the other two sisters go, oh, there we go again, always the first one, always apple in mom and dad's eye, the big super achiever, and so on. Of course, you get the sugar bowl, and then... Barb goes, well, I took care of mom all this time, and I, so it really uh, be mine. And the other two sisters are going, oh my God, the martyr. Is that really why you took care of mom for two months? You wanted a sugar bowl? And then Charlotte, who's the youngest one, is going, well, you know, I was really the closest one to grandma and to mom, and I know they would have wanted me to have a sugar bowl. The other ones are, you know, going on, oh God, the baby always is spoiled and always gets whatever she wants, and so on. So they start arguing and arguing and arguing. All of that over, all of this stuff has nothing to do with that object of the sugar bowl. It's all viewed. It's all, you've identified this thing. Uh, it's captured your attention. You know, there's desire attached to it. All this karmic history is attached to it. That's what's called the fixed view. That combination of the perception, the sensory perception, the cognitive identification of this as an object, and then interested in this, I like it, I don't like it, and all the other karmic stuff that you know about it, and the attitudes you have about it, all of that's called a view, and we have to learn to let go of our view. Um, but at any rate, so you can imagine this argument going on and on and on, somehow it gets resolved, but the sisters are estranged, the relationship is never the same again, and so on. So I think every family has some sort of history along these lines. I'm not saying this is in my family, but We've been parallel kinds of things in my family. So, um, anyway, that's how stuff like this. This is how this is how clinging and views and small mind and disharmony can arise 
in our day-to-day -day life. There's a great um, religious saying that, um, that I think is an interesting antidote to you know, the type of views that you're talking about, and that is question, is that so? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I've abused my time a lot. I've, I've gone over it, so I think we need to wrap it up. Um, I used it well. Thank you. <laughs>